This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. everybody welcome to why is everyone yelling with Lindsay Hine I'm your host Lindsay and I'm so grateful you're here today this is a podcast for parents or anybody helping raise kids and I hope that each week you walk away with something helpful that will help you in your parenting in some way shape or form today you're listening to episode 27 and I'm talking with Ellie Sanazaro Ellie's world was forever changed when her daughter was born without a chromosomal disorder doctors had told her to expect. Though Ellie's daughter was born without the challenges that she expected she would have, her heart still felt led to adopt a baby with Down syndrome. So Ellie is now passionate about spreading the message that every child is an image bearer. She recently self-published a book called Image Bearer that comes out in April this coming month. I pre-ordered my book as soon as I booked this interview myself. You can go to imagebearerbook.com to grab a copy. And I hope you're as inspired by this conversation with Ellie as I am. If you're new to the show this week, I want to let you know we're part of the Sandy Boy Podcast Productions Network. And we have four other amazing shows in the network. We have a running-based podcast called All Have Another with Lindsay Hine, hosted by me. Another running-based news podcast called The Up and Running Podcast. The Illuminate Podcast, where we are sharing stories of people doing really cool, uplifting, inspiring work in the world. And then we have the newest edition, The Urban Pharmacy Podcast, which is hosted by Stacey Heine and she is sharing all kinds of evidence-based research on plant-based nutrition, holistic living, and non-toxic living. Great episodes over there already. Go check them out. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram. We are Why Is Everyone Yelling? And then make sure you go check out Ellie and her son Finn on Instagram. They are Mr. Incredible, and you can also find her book on Instagram and all she's doing with that image bearer book. All right, enjoy my conversation with Ellie Sanazaro. All right, well, today on the podcast, we have Ellie Sanazaro on the show. Welcome to the show, Ellie. Hi, thanks, Lindsay, so much for having me. I'm excited to talk. So you have some big things happening right now. Tell us about what just showed up at your house. Yeah, well, yesterday um, I was actually at my mom's house and a gigantic FedEx truck pulled up and we unloaded 54 big heavy boxes of books out of it in the rain. Um, And I'm so grateful my mom is letting me keep all those books in her basement because there are a lot of them and they're taking up a lot of space. But that is what showed up yesterday. So exciting. Okay, this is your first book. How does it feel to get your eyes on it for the first time? Yeah, well, the first feeling I felt was relief because I was a little bit nervous, like, ah, what if something's wrong and I didn't anticipate it and didn't turn out how I wanted, but everything turned out just as I was hoping it would. And so I felt so much relief and then just excitement because it's been, um, you know, a little over a year leading up to the moment of finally getting to hold the book in my hands. And so it just felt kind of wild getting to see it for the first time. I'm so excited about it. I pre-ordered it this morning. It's called Image Bearer. Tell us the meaning behind the book. This is a whole huge, gigantic story we're going to get into, I know. Uh, But tell us what inspired the book. Yeah, so um, the short version is that the book is inspired by Genesis 127, which is the part of the Bible that talks about how God created man and woman in his image. And so the idea of image bearer... um, came from just that thought of every single person bearing the image of God and reflecting who God is and that it doesn't matter um, what differences a person has, what abilities they do or don't possess, that every single person has that status of image bearer. Okay, so now we'll get into your story (laughs) and how that relates to the bigger story of everybody being created in the the image of God. Um, Tell us about your first pregnancy. 
Yeah. So um, I got married when I was 23 and then pregnant pretty shortly after at 24 and just was so excited. My husband and I had dated forever and we had just like always talked about having a baby. And so um, our doctor said, hey, there's this new blood test. We can find out the gender early. We were like, yes, sign us up. We were just so thrilled to, you know, get to find out if we were having a boy or a girl. And so we did that. And the doctor's like, it'll also just make sure that there's no like chromosomal or genetic anomalies. And we're like, okay, yeah, yeah. Like we just figured that's not going to happen to us. You know, no one in our family has ever had that happen. Um, and so we really just took the blood test and thought that we were going to find out the gender early. Um, but time passed and, you know, we we're supposed to get our results and we hadn't gotten them. And then uh, finally one day I got a call from my doctor's office and it was the nurse and she said, okay, I'm going to hand the phone to the doctor. And at that moment, my heart just sunk because I knew that meant that there was bad news. And so the doctor told me basically the test had identified an extra chromosome and that he didn't know much about it and we'd have to talk to a genetic counselor. And that was basically all the information he could give me. So um, we later found out that my daughter was expected to be born with a condition that would cause um, learning disabilities and uh, language difficulties and some physical differences and possibly seizures. And so we were honestly just so like surprised. It was not anything that we ever expected. And also honestly, like very devastated. Um, we had just, you know, like every parent, we had all these, um, expectations in our mind and just things that we had imagined for our child. And so to find out that she was going to have these extra challenges was really, um, it brought a lot of sorrow and just a lot of sadness to what should have been a really joyful time in our lives. And so we found that out about 14 weeks, I want to say. And so just went through the rest of the pregnancy, expecting to um, welcome a child with a disability into our family. The test was not considered diagnostic. It was, you know, we were told it was like 99% accurate, but it wasn't an official diagnosis. We'd have to either get an amniocentesis or just wait until after she was born. We decided because of the risks just to wait. Um, but we honestly just fully expected uh, that she was going to be born with this genetic condition. And so our daughter was born. We just you know, fell in love right away. Um, and the doctors took some of her blood and sent it off to get it tested. But we honestly kind of forgot that that's what was happening just because we were so like amazed by her. And so we brought her home. We weren't sleeping at all. <laughs> and like a week after she was born, I got a call from a nurse and she said, everything came back normal. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, wait, what? And she's like, yes, every, you know, everything looks normal. And so I went and told Scott and we were just like so excited. Like we thought that our daughter was going to have these extra challenges and we thought that, you know, we were going to be going through something really hard together. But then um, it ended up that that was not the case. And so we were just really happy, to be honest. So, OK, you find out your daughter will not have these extra challenges. What next? Well, we were just like felt like we dodged a bullet, really. Um which now saying that with everything else that has happened feels hard to say, but that yeah. is how we felt. We felt like, we felt like, man, this hard thing was going to happen and then it didn't. And so we were just really excited and really like celebrating. And we had been praying throughout our whole pregnancy that, you know, that she wouldn't be born with, um, with this condition. And so we felt like, man, this is an answer to prayer. And we just kind of thought it was all wrapped up. Like that was that we weren't really going to revisit that again. Um, and so that ended up not being the case, but initially that's just how we felt. Yeah. So you go through your whole, whole entire pregnancy though, thinking that that is going to happen. What were your phases like mentally walking through that pregnancy? I'm sure you had some like moments of high and moments of low. Yeah. So the first, um, when I got the news initially, I just wanted, I felt like a moment was stolen from me. So like finding out that your baby, finding out your baby's gender is supposed to be this big, exciting moment. And I didn't actually get that. So the doctor told me, you know, your baby has this condition and he didn't even tell me the gender. And so I had to Google and it, it was a condition that only girls have. And so then I figured out that way that we were having a girl. So it was like, man, I didn't get that moment. And all I wanted was for Scott to have that moment. So I was home before he was waiting to give him the news when he got home from work. And so initially I was just like, 
hold us together. Like, don't cry because I just want to tell him we're having a girl. And so I, I did that. And then, you know, it took about five seconds before the tears came and he figured out pretty quickly that, um, that something else was going on. But like initially that was my big focus is I wanted him to have that moment. And then once I told him kind of what we were expecting, um, what the doctors had told us, we just sat there and Googled. So it was like, the whole night was spent Googling, just trying to figure out any information we could about what this would mean for our family, what it would mean for our child. And initially for me, I felt a lot of shame. Um, And so I was like, I don't want to tell anybody. I don't want to tell anybody until she's born. Like, I just want to keep this between us. And, you know, Scott, he was like, no, like we need to tell our families, like we need people supporting us through this. And so we definitely kind of process it differently, but I think there was a lot of grief and the grief came in waves. And so, you know, some days I would just feel so excited to be pregnant and to be having a baby. And then other times I would just feel so sad, like, you know, why did, why is this happening to us? You know, just not understanding the why. And, um, you know, our faith is really important to us. So the whole time we felt like, we know God is going to use this for something good. Like we believed that because that's what we read in the Bible. But for me, it was just hard to see like, okay, God, I know you're going to use this for something good, but I don't really see how that can happen because this just feels like a negative basically. So there were just a lot of, a whole lot of feelings in the midst of the pregnancy and they all kind of changed day to day. So what's your daughter's name? Rosalie. Rosalie. That's so pretty. So, and then you have, what's your second child's name? Her name's Leone. Okay. So since you had Rosalie, you then had Leone, mm-hmm. and now you have baby Finn, who is yes. one. Mm-hmm. Um, share with us how Finn came to your family. Yeah, so we ended up adopting Finn uh, with the help of an organization called the National Down Syndrome Adoption Network. I'm like tearing up when you say that because it's like this moment in your life when you think, oh, we're going to have all these unexpected challenges, and your daughter ends up not having those unexpected extra challenges. What led you to then go seek out a child that did have those extra challenges? Yeah. So I told you that like we had a lot of grief in the pregnancy. I felt a lot of shame and sorrow, but the other like undeniable thing that my husband and I both felt during our pregnancy with Rosalie was just the sense that God was preparing us to welcome a child with a disability into our family. So we just felt like, you know, it was about six months of the pregnancy that we had you know, found out this news. And so during that time, we just felt like God was preparing our hearts. He was preparing us. And we just felt like, you know what, God's going to equip us and give us everything we need to raise this child with whatever challenges or special needs that she has. And so when she was born and she didn't have those challenges that we expected, we were kind of like, huh, like we were excited. And then after a couple months had passed, we were a little bit like stumped, like, didn't we feel like God was doing something? Didn't we feel like he was changing our hearts and preparing us to parent a child with special needs? But then that didn't happen. So like, was that all for nothing? Like what was, what was going on there? What was God doing? And so, um, it was a couple months after Rosalie was born, I was in the kitchen and just suddenly had this idea, like, what if God wants us to adopt a child with um, a chromosomal disorder? And I knew that Rosalie, the disorder that she was supposed to be born with, um, it's not as common. So I didn't think we'd be able to adopt a child with that disorder, but I knew Down syndrome was similar. It was another trisomy. And so I just like, I don't know if this is a thing, but I Googled Down syndrome adoption just to see like, can you even do this? And when I did the website for the national down syndrome adoption network popped up and I opened it and it was like in an instant, I just knew like, this is what, this is what we're supposed to do. This is what it was. You know, this is what God was doing all along. Were you scared? I did not feel scared simply because I just felt like so much like peace and direction from God. Like I just felt, I just felt like so confident, like, wow, this is what we're supposed to do. I can't really explain it other than I just had this like strong sense. Um, But when I told Scott, that is maybe where I felt scared because we both had this mutual feeling of like, okay, we avoided this hard thing and that's good. Um, And so to go to him and be like, hey, remember that hard thing that was supposed to happen (laughs) that didn't happen? Um, I think it was supposed to happen. And so uh, bringing it up to him, it, it was kind of as I expected where he was like, I'm not feeling that. I don't really ever see that happening, but I'll pray about it. And so he just said, I'll pray about it. And so, you know, that was what felt scary for me was not the idea of 
um, adopting a child with Down syndrome. But at that point, because I felt such a strong call, um, it was the idea that maybe it wouldn't happen because Scott and I would have to be on the same page. That's not something that, you know, only one spouse can be can be okay with. And so there was just a fear like maybe maybe this is not going to happen. And so we both prayed for about two years. And then on his way to work, one day Scott called me and he's like, I think we just got our yes. Like he had been praying and he just felt like, you know, God had basically given him the green light. And so then we were able to start the adoption process. But um, it was definitely like a lot of waiting in those two years and just, you know, wondering, like feeling this strong call, like, yes, this is what I'm supposed to do. But also I can't do it, you know, if Scott is not on board. And so it had to be him too. Were you surprised when he gave you that call or had you been waiting for it to come? Well, I was surprised because I just didn't know when it was going to come. But um, the way I've described it is I felt like God changed my heart in an instant. Like in an instant, I just knew like, yes, this is what we're supposed to do. But then with Scott, it was kind of like a slow, like melting away. Like at first it was like, I don't think we're supposed to do that. And then it was like, well, you know, I do feel like God did change our hearts through that pregnancy. And then it was like, yes, I think we're going to adopt a child with Down syndrome, but just not yet. And then so when I got the call, like I knew there had been this process that had happened over time of God kind of warming him up to the idea of adopting a child with Down syndrome. And like, how did you remain patient through that? Because two years of knowing this is what I feel like our life is supposed to look like is a really long time. Yeah, I really wasn't always patient, to be honest. (laughs) But (laughs) um, one thing that I tried to keep in mind was like, this would be if I if if I pressured Scott into this, that would just be really bad. Like, I just knew it couldn't be me trying to convince him because that's just not a way to welcome a child into your family. Like both parties have to be completely on board. And so, especially when you're talking about adopting a child with a disability. And so I just, I just kept that in my mind. Like this has to be something that Scott comes to on his own. This cannot be me pressuring him, but also we did a lot of things very intentionally together to like learn about Down syndrome while we were waiting. And so there's a um, a reality show called Born This Way that follows five adults who have Down syndrome and it follows them through like moving out of their parents' homes and getting jobs and um, one of them gets married. And so we watched that together and that was so helpful because we got to see like, oh, so this is like what future could be like if we adopted a child with Down syndrome. You know, you never know what it's going to look like, but like, hey, these are some of the options, which we didn't know. And then we also got involved with our local Down Syndrome Association in St. Louis. And so um, we got to volunteer, like holding some babies who had Down Syndrome while their parents had like a a welcome brunch. And so um, doing those things together just, I think, kind of helped both of us feel like we were preparing ourselves for what was to come in the midst of that waiting. That's really smart. That is really smart that you did that. (laughs) (laughs) Dip your toes in a little bit first. Yeah, Yeah, that's good. Hey, friends, a quick break here to thank Beam for supporting this podcast. You've been hearing me rave about Beam for a few weeks now, and I am so hooked on their Dream Powder, which is a warm, hot chocolatey blend that I take every night after my kids go to bed. It has a healthy take on hot chocolate, helping your mind and body wind down for the night. Better sleeping and a sense of calm. I love it. This is a THC-free CBD product, no THC in it. It's third-party tested and it has the highest quality extraction. I don't mess around with sleep, so I'm telling you it works for me, I hope. This can be something that could be helpful for you. They also have a really great hydration line as well that I use for pre and post workouts and just everyday balance. Go to beamtlc.com, use the code Lindsay15, and that'll save you 15% off your order. All right, and if you are loving this podcast, please consider leaving us a quick rating and review. I would personally appreciate it so very much. Enjoy the rest of my conversation with Ellie Sanazaro. Tell us about Finn and what the experience, the adoption experience was like. 
Yeah. So when Scott called me on his way to work, um, what I didn't say was that Leone was six months old. And so we had a little baby at home. And so we both, after such a long time of waiting, felt like, yes, we want to get started right away. Um, but at the same time, we didn't want to have another baby right away because, you know, it's she was six months old. Um, yeah. So we we did apply for some or we looked at some different adoption agencies and applied at one and then you had to get our home study. And so that's where basically a social worker comes and like talks to everybody and looks at your house and um, just makes sure that it's a safe environment to bring a child into. So we took our time with the home study. Like you can get it done in a month or two um, sometimes, but we took, I want to say like four or five months just to fill out the paperwork and do our training and everything just because we were like, we got to buy some time here. Yeah. (laughs) So we did that. And then um, I want to say from the time we like applied at the adoption agency to by the time we were considered like an active family was about seven months. And so we took about seven months before we were, you know, ready to say yes to a baby. And then um, we waited about a month and uh, didn't hear anything. So there weren't any sort of like adoption situations that that came up. Um, And then Within the matter of about a week, week and a half, there were six different uh, wow. situations that arose where it was like, do you want to be presented? So basically, we would read what little information there was, and then we'd have to say like, yes, present our family. So we had made like a like a photo album basically um, to, te- to tell um, like a birth mother about, um, about our family. And so we said yes to all six of those and just, we were kind of like, it's in God's hands, you know, whatever baby he has chosen for us is, is who we're going to bring home. And so then, uh, we kind of just waited to hear what was going to happen. And then we got a call one Friday night from Stephanie, who's the director of the national down syndrome adoption network. And she said, Hey, congratulations, you've been chosen by a family. And so, um, he was going to be born a little over a month later. So we got to video call with his, um, with his first mom and first dad and get to know them a little bit. And then, uh, he was born a little early. So we were supposed to be there for his birth, but he surprised everybody. So we got there the day after he was born and got to meet him and, um, spend a few days with his first parents. And, um, yeah, that was kind of how the adoption went. Can you describe what that conversation felt like? I'm sure super emotional for them and you. Yeah. Um, so the first time we had a video call, we were really nervous. Like, are they going to like us? Cause you know, um, they had just seen us in like pictures and like things, information we've written about ourselves. And so we were like, are they going to like us as much in person as they did, you know, reading about us. But then when I got on the call, I was just amazed at how, how natural it was. Like there are definitely a lot of emotions in there, but, um, Honestly, probably the biggest surprise of our adoption process was just the relationship we formed with Finn's first family. Um, And we have a totally open adoption with them. So his first mom and I talk often and regularly and we video call with them and we have um, gotten together with them and she helped plan his first birthday party and they came down. So, um, so that was the big surprise is like, I expect it to be this really awkward, like tricky thing to navigate. And in some adoption situations, for sure that happens, but um, it was really just such a sweet surprise how well we clicked from the get go. And just, um, it really felt right away. Like we were all on a team together and we all just wanted to, you know, make sure we gave Finn the best life possible. And so they are amazing. They've been so supportive of us and we have tried to be supportive of them. And it's been a real blessing, the relationship we have with them. Wow, that is so cool. Okay, so when he was born, he was in the NICU for a little while. So what did that look like with your family? Because you're not, you don't live in the same town. Yeah, so we drove about six hours with a newly three-year-old <laughs> and a 16-month-old. And then thankfully, we were able to, we spent a few nights in like an Airbnb. And then we were able to stay at the Ronald McDonald house. And then my parents came down and helped uh, out with the girls for part of part of the time we were there because we were there about three weeks. And then um, my husband's mom, she came down and helped out with the girls for part of it. So thankfully, we had a lot of support there, even though it was far away. And uh, I want to say after about half of our time there, Scott actually went back to St. Louis with the girls just because we felt like they needed some more normalcy. It was just a lot of adjustment and transition all at once for them. And then um, when Finn finally was 
uh, graduated from the NICU. Scott came back and we drove down together. And that drive was very scary because Finn was very tiny and he had a feeding tube and we just had to stop very often to like feed him and adjust him in his car seat. But it was definitely so good to be able to finally go home after, you know, about three weeks in a different, different city and kind of separated from our family. How much did he weigh when you brought him home? Um, I think he was about four pounds. So he oh, was born. Yeah, he was born four pounds, two ounces, which was way bigger than what the doctors expected. They thought he would be maybe three pounds. So that was like, actually really exciting that he was even that big. He lost a little weight like most newborn babies do initially. And then I think by the time we went home, he was about up to his his birth weight. So he was like just four pounds. Wow, that's so tiny. My oldest was six four when he was born and that was my smallest baby. And I just remember being so scared because he was so little. I can't imagine four pounds. Yeah. Plus so feeding I, tube, obviously, and all the other challenges. Yes. Yeah. The feeding tube in some ways made it easier because, um, you know, we could just give him his food through his feeding you know, tube. Getting um, it, yeah. yeah, we knew he was getting what he needed. Uh, but yeah, when I first saw Finn, like, you know, my husband, and I, we just instantly loved him, but also I was scared. Like I was scared to pick him up and, you know, for a long time would ask the NICU nurses like, Hey, will you help me pick him up and like get him comfortable? Cause I just, you know, he had all these wires and tubes on him and he was so small. And I just, my babies were like eight pounds. And so I just had never, <laughs> I'd never seen a baby as small as him, even though I know there are a lot of babies born smaller. Um, so yeah, it took, I was, I, I was grateful for the time we had in the NICU because I learned a lot from the NICU nurses and they definitely helped me feel confident caring for Finn um, with his size and just his, you know, his feeding tube and everything else. Okay. So Finn is, did he turn one already or is he, you know, he, you said she helped plan your, the birthday party. Yeah. So he turned one at the beginning of October. So he's oh, okay. about seven, yeah, 17 months now. Okay. He's a little bit older than I thought then. Um, what is life with Finn and your girls like now? Well, it is a lot of fun. It's very busy. Um, we did not expect when we adopted Finn that we would have a global pandemic <laughs> right? and um, the world would shut down. Uh, and because Finn, um, he has he's had a few hospitalizations for breathing issues and um, they've been a little scary. And so for him, you know, with the coronavirus, he's definitely considered more high risk. And so we definitely had to really hunker down and take a lot of precautions just to, to make sure we were keeping him safe. So that was definitely something we did not expect. And I think did make the um, kind of the first year a little more challenging because we didn't, we didn't really get as much of that community support like our community was so supportive and would bring us meals when he was in the hospital but actually like that face-to-face -face, like yeah relational, just like impossible know, yeah that, that wasn't happening and so that was challenging um but the relationship that the girls and Finn have together is so sweet um the girls I mean they just like pick them up and bring them all over the house and dance with them and he likes to pull their hair which we're trying to, <laughs> to stop but but they're just like totally just just like how you would imagine siblings. They play together, they have fun, they get annoyed with each other. Um, but I would say their relationship is is really, really sweet. And Scott and I just sometimes watch them and we're like, oh my gosh, the girls are so obsessed with him. And just like, <laughs> it's it's so funny. But um, but yeah, the, their relationship has really uh, grown into something really sweet. Oh, that is so special. Um, anything unexpected? You know, you said you did a lot of research and you you really, you prayed about this for two years. Is there anything unexpected that um, someone who might be walking through a diagnosis of a child, you know, that they're pregnant and they have a diagnosis that their child might have Down syndrome, um, anything that you would want to share with that parent? Yeah. So it's kind of two separate things. So the biggest surprise for me was definitely his eating challenges. So I'd read a lot of books and done a lot of research and like followed a lot of people on Instagram. And so with Down syndrome, kind of the biggest concern you hear about is a child having a heart defect, which is a very big deal if a child needs open heart surgery. You know, that's that's a really big thing to go through. Um, and so you know, I'd read a lot about that. And Finn, he has a heart defect, but he didn't require surgery. It doesn't really impact the function of his heart. 
but when I read those books, I didn't feel like they really talked as much about like the challenges that a lot of kids with Down syndrome have with feeding. And so, you know, when Finn came home with a feeding tube, I kind of thought it was going to be a really temporary thing. Um, but he ended up having his NG tube for about eight months. He never really took to drinking a bottle. And then he got a G tube in his stomach placed, um, around eight months and he has it now, but it probably will be taken out soon, which is exciting. But, um, just like he's had a lot of challenges with feeding and drinking and was aspirating on liquids. And I just felt like that was not something in all my research that I had read as much about, but then now knowing a lot of people who have a child with down syndrome, I know that it is very, very common. So, um, that would be like, just what a surprise was, but for a, for a new parent who's walking this road, I would just say your child is going to bring you so much joy. Um, so like, I know it can feel really disappointing receiving that news and getting a diagnosis. It feels disappointing and lonely and scary and just like so many hard emotions all wrapped up into one when you receive that diagnosis, but your child's life is going to be so full of joy and just the way um, Finn is able to like the effect he has on people without really doing anything special, but just by being who he is, is so magical. And so just that their child really is going to be not just a blessing to them, but a blessing to literally everyone they come into contact with. So just that those feelings, the, the grief, it's that's so normal. And like, you need to go through that. But just knowing that on the other side of it, there's so much joy coming. Yeah, I was wondering if there is a process, and I know that your process is different since mm-hmm. you your your first child that you thought was going to have a disability did not, but like what the process is of like going through those feelings of grief and like you said, disappointment, and then on the other side of it, seeing that joy, is there any like shame or like feelings of guilt involved about the feelings that you rightfully originally had? Yes, a lot of parents I know have guilt about those feelings, and I have felt guilt about the feelings I had when I was pregnant with Rosalie, Um, but I talked to um, a woman I've connected with on Instagram. Her name's Megan DeJarnett, and she wrote an inclusive children's book, and she herself, um, she has spinal muscular atrophy, I want to say, so she's used a wheelchair most of her life, and she has a child with special needs, and she said, you know, I'm a person with a disability, and I went through all that grief too. So hearing her say that, and she said, you know, you have to go through that grief. So hearing those words from someone who has a disability was really helpful for me to hear because it's like, you know, it's just natural. It's just part of the process. Like every single person uh, who has a child with, you know, with some sort of unexpected diagnosis is going to have a season of grief. Um, And that's normal. And the grief comes back like it comes back in waves so the grief and the joy can coexist so you know like we have so much fun with Finn he brings so much joy but there's been moments where you know I thought he was hitting a milestone and then he wasn't or you know he got a new diagnosis or something else going on with his health and some of that grief comes back like oh this is hard or oh I'm sad that he has to go through this but even in the midst of all that his life is not a sad life it's a life full of joy but you know, grief, grief is a feeling that you feel out of love because you want just the very, very, very best for, you know, the person you love. And when things are hard for them, it makes you sad. And so I think grief is just part of the way we love our children who have a diagnosis. I'm curious what the sleep situation is because parents of, of young children deal with sleep issues all the time. Is it, is, does he sleep well? Are there issues in the middle of the night? Finn sleeps so well and my first my girls were not good sleepers at all um and Finn he just he he came home and we had to feed him around the clock so he had to be fed every three hours for the first three months of his life we had to set our alarm (laughs) wake him up yeah wake ourselves up and it took such a long time to feed him with his feeding tube but the I got permission from his doctor when he was about three months old to like skip one feed. She said, skip a feed, let him wake you up when he's hungry. And he slept through the whole entire night. (laughs) So he skipped like a couple feeds and he has slept through the whole night, basically every night since then. And I do think some of that just comes from being in the NICU and being in the hospital. Um, I've just heard a lot of people say that their baby who's in the NICU because the nurses get them on such a strict schedule that they do sleep well through the night. So 
So he does. He's a great sleeper. He does have um, uh, severe obstructive sleep apnea. So he does have to sleep with um, with oxygen. And he, he was sleeping with it. And then he didn't have to use it anymore. And now he's back on it. And as he's gotten older, that is a little bit trickier because he wants to rip the cannula off his face. Uh-huh. Um, versus when he was swaddled, he couldn't. But... Um, but even even in the midst of that, honestly, we massively lucked out, and um, it makes me wonder how I survived with my girls not sleeping <laughs> at all. Like Scott and I joke, I'm like, you know, Finn. There's a lot of things about him that are challenging. Like he has all these extra doctor's appointments and therapy appointments and stuff. I'm like, but man, in every other arena, he's like such an easy baby. Like he sleeps great. So. I have no complaints about him when it comes to sleep at all. That is a huge gift. Do you feel a sense of relief when he has the oxygen on, though, knowing that, like, I don't know, nothing will happen because you know he's getting that oxygen? Yeah. So what brings me more relief is he sleeps with a pulse ox, which is basically measuring his heart rate and his oxygen levels. So even, even when he had like a few months of time where he didn't require the oxygen, we still knew that his oxygen levels were staying at a healthy level throughout the night. So, so yeah, that has helped immensely. And I, we didn't get to come home from the NICU with that. And I really wish we would have because, Mm -hmm. um, I, before we had that, I did have a lot of, of worry just about him sleeping at night. Oh, for sure. I mean, the smaller the baby is, I feel like the more that worry is in addition to the other complications that Finn had. Yeah. Um, wow. This is such a cool story. Talk to us about the, you guys are donating 10% of your profits to your book, right? Yeah. So our book, 10% of the profits will be going to the National Down Syndrome Adoption Network, which is the organization that helped us connect with Finn. So, um, yeah, I just love that organization and really wanted to support them with this book and what I was doing. I'm curious if you have any message or anything you would like to share with people like me who are not in the special needs community, like things that we should know. Yeah. Um, I think a big thing is that even if you don't have a child with a disability or maybe you don't even know anybody with a disability, um, it is still so important to teach your kids about people with disabilities. Um, a lot of times what happens is we go to the grocery store or we go to the playground and our toddler just stares. Like if they see someone with a noticeable difference, they stare. Or if it's like my Leone, they will make a very loud comment like, mom, why is she like that? And so, you know, as parents, a lot of times we will like want to just crawl in a hole. We'll want to shush our kids and like, you know, move them away from the situation because we're worried about offending someone or we're worried. We're just embarrassed about like the comment that they're making. But, you know, seizing those opportunities and saying like, oh, well, she's using a wheelchair and she uses that because her legs work differently than yours. Basically, like seizing those opportunities to teach our kids about differences because yeah, if you don't talk about differences at home and you don't talk about them in the world, it sends a message to our kids that, you know, having a disability is a bad thing and we should avoid those people. And so um, really having that conversation as open as possible with your kids as often as possible, I think really prepares them for meeting people with differences at school or at church or anywhere else. So I think children's books, and this is why I wrote my book, I think children's books are the best tool that we can use at home with our kids because they're so non-threatening. It doesn't feel like we're sitting our kids down and like giving them a lesson. It's just, you know, we're reading a book with them. But as you read a book that features a child who is blind or who uses a wheelchair or, you know, any other kind of difference, um, it gives our kids the chance to ask questions and to be curious and to, it just really normalizes those differences so that when they go out into the world, those different won't catch them off guard the way they would if they hadn't been prepared at all. So I think that's the main thing is just like talk to your kids about differences as much as you can. Do you know the book called The Push? No, I don't. Okay. Well, it's one of our favorite books and it it is about a friendship of a little boy, one in a wheelchair and one not. And it just got me thinking. We read it often. My boys love it. Um, And like you said, it's just a natural way for them to see friendship that doesn't look traditional, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever think about friendship, though, with Finn and what the what friendships will look like? Because I'm just picturing, you know, my boys running around on the playground with their buddies, and I wonder how your heart feels about that topic. Yeah, so um, 
I feel like with the pandemic, any thoughts oh, about gosh. friendship have been like put on hold because we <laughs> haven't been able to get together with people. Um, but I have connected with a few families uh, in St. Louis who have a child Finn's age with Down syndrome. And so um, we are really excited, hopefully soon to be able to like get them together at the park and have them play. So like on the one hand, I think it's really important for me to allow Finn to have friendships with people who do have that in common with him, who have a similar diagnosis. Um, But I also hope that he will have friendships with uh, non-disabled people as well. And, um, you know, being able to have those friendships will just come from a place of them being really understanding and being willing and excited to like help make it work for him. And so, um, you know, in school, we really hope that he will be able to be in the general education classroom as much as possible. And, you know, I think that's important for him to be a part of his community. But I think at the same time, it's just as important for all those other kids who don't have a disability to be able to experience um, friendship and just like being in a classroom with Finn who is different than them. So yeah, when it comes to friendship, I kind of see like both as being important, Finn having friendships with people with Down syndrome and those who don't have it. Well, and what a motivator for like for me to talk to my kids about that, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I mean, I think that that's just something we have, you have to talk about because kids are naturally curious. Um, I also think they probably naturally gravitate towards kids that are just like them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a study, I forget who did it, but it, it showed that about two thirds of people feel uncomfortable um, interacting with people with disabilities. And it just comes from like, as humans, we have a natural fear of things that we don't understand or a natural fear of things that um, are different or unfamiliar. And so, yeah, that's why like normalizing it is so important because it makes total sense if your child shows up at the park and they see a child with a limb difference who maybe only has one arm, they are going to feel like, whoa, I'm not going to talk to that kid. Like, I don't know what happened to them. Are they Mm. safe to go talk to you? Like all these different questions are going to be going through their mind. But if you at home have had a conversation or read a book about a kid who had a limb difference, then all of a sudden your kid knows like, oh, that's not scary. Like, that's just how they were born or, you know, that's just how they are. Um, And so, so yeah, I think that it's something just to normalize as much as possible is gonna, gonna prepare your kids. I talk about, like, I call it playground confidence. Like you don't want your kid to feel totally like caught off guard or blindsided or, or scared or shy when they see someone in a playground who's different. You want them to feel empowered to go initiate friendship. And that really comes from those conversations at home. Playground confidence. I love that. I like want to make it a topic. Like, I I don't know. I just I love I love that you call it that. Did you make that up? Or did you hear it somewhere? I made it up. I don't really know where it came like where the idea came from. But I just you know, I I think about my girls like Rosalie. um, When she was younger, I'm sure she would have felt really uncomfortable going up to a child who was really different or had like a noticeable difference. Um, But I think since adding Finn into our family, and we've been really intentional about talking about differences. When Finn was staying in the hospital, I got to see her, they had like a playroom for the siblings and the kids who were staying in the PICU. um, And she got to interact with a lot of kids who did have have very noticeable differences. There was a little girl in almost like a full body cast and a little boy who was hooked up to all these wires and tubes. And Rosalie, like without skipping a beat, just went up to them and talked to them and like tried to play with them and be friends with them. And I just remember watching this and being like, I would never have done that when I was a kid. Like I would have been so scared. Um, And I just know that it comes from just that intentionality at home of having those conversations. And I thought like, man, I didn't know, like, I didn't realize as a parent that having those conversations would have equipped Rosalie to be able to go be a friend to those kids. And so I want to help equip parents to be able to do the same with their kids, because I think it just will lead to a more inclusive, inclusive world for everybody. That's so good. Yeah, we as parents cannot assume that our kids will figure that out on their own. Yeah, yeah. Your book, Image Bearer, uh, the characters in the book are based on real actual kids. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah. So when I had the idea to write Image Bearer, um, I knew I just wanted to be able to highlight as many differences and diagnoses as possible. Um, And so initially I was like, I guess I'll just have an illustrator like draw a kid in a wheelchair or draw a kid who's blind. And then I thought like, 
I have learned so much being on Instagram and connecting with families on Instagram and just watching like their stories and seeing like what day-to-day life is like with a child who has a disability. And I thought, what if I made a book that would allow other families to do that too? And so I reached out to families on Instagram, like a child who had spina bifida and uses a wheelchair, a child who's blind and uses um, a cane to help him get around and said like, hey, could we create an illustration inspired by your child. And then I have um, in the back of the book, it talks a little bit about the child who inspired the illustration. And then there's a link to go connect with them on Instagram so that if families want to continue to learn about what it what it looks like to to live with vision loss or what it looks like to live with cerebral palsy, um, they can go on Instagram and see the actual kids who they read about in the book and then kind of that learning process, that learning about differences can continue even after you're done reading the book. So um, so yeah, I was able, I forget how many kids there are, but there's a whole bunch of kids who, who are on Instagram and now inspired an illustration in the book. That is so cool. Well, I mentioned at the beginning, I pre-ordered it. I'm so excited. How did you decide, I, I heard you mention on uh, Worth Your Time podcast that you self-published how do you decide like how many books do I print and all those things yeah I I mean it it was definitely like I was just trying to figure it out as I went along so I found a printer who I wanted to go through because like the first question is do you want to do print on demand or do I want to order a bunch of books and um, sell them directly and so I ultimately decided to order books and sell them directly just to have a little more like freedom over the process but I did like a pre-order, like a time of pre-ordering. And so I was kind of like, had a number in mind of how many books I wanted to order. And then I was like, if I just get like a zillion more pre-orders than I'm expecting, maybe I'll order more than I was planning on. And like, if I get no pre-orders, then maybe <laughs> I'll I'll order less. And so, um, so that helped me kind of gauge how many, how many to buy. Okay. And so when is it officially like we can pre-order now, but when, when is it officially out? Yeah. So I would say like April, right at the beginning of April, if you order, it'll be shipped out to you right after you order it. So um, the books, they just arrived yesterday. And so I'm getting all of my shipping uh, materials situated. And so the the books that have been pre-ordered will go out right at the start of April. And then at that point, if you go ahead and order on my website, it'll just be shipped out to you right away. There won't be any like waiting period like there has been. Are you shipping them all? Yes. Woo. It's a lot of work. <laughs> yes, That's awesome. I'm thankful that at least this first like big like batch of orders is like all going out at once. Uh And then from then on, I'm assuming it'll be more of like a a trickle. Like I'll be shipping, you know, a few out at a time instead of, you know, a whole bunch. Oh, that's so cool. Um, Okay, Ellie. Well, what is one thing professionally or personally that you haven't done in your life that you'd like to do? Oh, wow. Um, Let me think. That's a tough question. I mean, I would love to publish more books, but I feel like that's kind of the same as what I've already done. Um, I would love to travel with my kids. I guess that's personally, but um, I was able to travel a lot as a child and experience, you know, different cultures and areas in the world. And um, I haven't, we haven't done that with our kids yet. And I really would love to someday just because I'd like to experience that with them and also um, show them different, different parts of parts of the world and um, celebrate those types of differences, like cultural differences with them. What are some books about inclusivity that you would recommend to the listener other than obviously we're going to recommend Image Bearer? <laughs> yeah, there are so many. So if you go to my website, imagebearerbook.com, I actually compiled a list of over 80 inclusive oh, wow. children's books. Yeah, I like made that my project this summer while I was waiting for the illustrations to be done. Like, how can I create a resource for families? And so I just like bought a bunch of inclusive books and checked a bunch out from the library and I like chose which ones I liked best and put them on a list. So if you want like a really long list of options, um, you can go there. But just like some of my favorites, um, there's one called When Charlie Met Emma. And then there's like a second one called Awesomely Emma. That is probably, those are like probably my favorites. They are about a little girl who was born with limb differences and she uses a wheelchair. The first one is about a little boy who meets her at the playground. And at first he feels really shy and unsure. And then they, um, they form a friendship and start playing together. And then the second one is about like accessibility and also um, the idea of 
the wheelchair kind of being like an extension of one's body and how you shouldn't push it without permission and those types of things. So I felt like those were both very like beautifully done, but also instructive. Like my kids walked away, um, without it feeling like, um, like an intentional lesson, but just like through the story, they walked away really learning a lot about like how to approach people with disabilities. Um, there's a series called the able fables. They are on Instagram. Um, and she is releasing her third book. Her first one was about a giraffe getting fitted for a wheelchair. And then the second one was about a lion who had a port wine stain, which is a facial birthmark. And then this third one is about, um, I don't know what animal, but it's about dwarfism. So she's just releasing a lot of books about inclusion. And then no such thing as normal. I mentioned uh, Megan DeJarnett earlier. She wrote that. And um, that's a really good one to, to introduce your kids to the topic of differences. I love it. Okay, we'll link to your website in the show notes as well. Okay, Ellie, well, what is your last message that you'd like to leave with our audience today? Um, I think I would just love to leave everyone with the message that it doesn't matter your differences, what you can do, what you can't do, what you look like, just that every single person has value and worth because God created them in his image. So um, to anyone who feels different and feels less worthy to know that um, that you are valuable and loved and important. And to any moms who maybe are carrying a baby and encountering an unexpected diagnosis that their babies are created fearfully and wonderfully and are made with purpose as well. Thank you so much, Ellie. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Lindsay. I've loved talking to you. All right, friends, thanks for being here today. Thanks, Ellie, for sharing your story. Friends, go pick up her book. Support this new author, imagebearerbook.com. Check out Beam if you're looking for a sleep supplement, something to help you get better sleep and a sense of calm in the evening. Their dream powder, I'm all about it. Go to beamtlc.com. Use the code Lindsay15 at checkout. I appreciate you all being here so much today. You can connect with me over on our Instagram page, Why Is Everyone Yelling? Or my personal Instagram page, lindsayhine626. I seriously love hearing from listeners so much. So please don't ever hesitate to reach out. If you ever have a guest suggestion, you can email myself or my assistant, Emma, lindsay at sandyboyproductions.com or emma at sandyboyproductions.com. All right. Well, hope you learned something today and I really hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll see you next week on Why Is Everyone Yelling?